the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. For those who have loved ones currently in the hospital, who have perhaps lost a loved one, it raises many of the why God questions. Why does God allow things to happen like this? And when we're in these kinds of times, whether we're talking about the tragedy of what unfolded yesterday in Boston, to the loss of a child, to maybe just the day-to-day challenges that we face in life, oftentimes we, we feel as if we're kind of groping about and we're, we're wondering in the middle of the darkness of our experience, how do we find God? Coincidentally, a new title of a book called called Finding God in the Dark, and it's co-written by my next guest, Ted Gluck. Ted, of course, has been on the program previously. We talked to him uh, some months ago regarding his best-selling book, Dallas and the Spitfire. Back again to join us today, and Ted, it's always great to have you on the show. Hey, Craig, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Boy, the timing of our conversation today in the wake of the tragedy of Boston yesterday, again, it just touches on so many levels emotionally and and spiritually. Kind of give me your overall sense, um, particularly in the spirit in which uh, you wrote this book along with Ronnie Martin. Um, We're in these moments, be it the tragedy of yesterday to simply maybe losing a job, losing a loved one. We grapple with this sense of where God, why God? Yeah, we really do. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. These are these are existential questions. You know, these are questions that that strike to the core of our existence, and um, they really strike to the core of how it is that we think about God. And um, you know, as as I prepared for the show tonight, I, I knew you were going to ask me about this, and I was I was talking it over and, and praying about it with my wife, and I was reminded of the verse in First Thessalonians that says. You know, as Christians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. And, you know, but we still grieve, you know, and, and whether you're intimately involved in a situation like this or, or whether you're just kind of observing it from the outside, I mean, you're grieved. And I'm reminded of the, the doctrine of total human depravity, you know, the idea that that we're all sinners in this world with sick hearts and that there's no hope for us and there's there's nothing good apart from Christ. And I think... You know, what what you take from this event, I mean, you watch the media and you hear things like, you know, we're going to do everything we can. And, you know, there's all kinds of kind of governmental slash military finagling going on. And, and on one hand, you, you root for that and you're, you're hopeful that something will be done. But, you know, as Christians, we know that um, apart from the cross and apart from Christ, you know, there's really there's not a good answer. You know, there's not a great hopeful thing that that obama or anyone else can say to people to really make them feel better so you know i think for us 
maybe the takeaway is an opportunity to, to recognize the sin in our own hearts. And, you know, much of my book deals with that, you know, this idea that, you know, it wasn't until I really humbled myself and threw myself at the foot of the cross that I had any joy and any peace in this life. And I think we were reminded that we don't find our joy and peace in circumstances or situations. You know, it, it isn't God's job to, to make everything perfect for us. Um, uh, but he does find us. He does seek us out. And he does give us the opportunity to to humble ourselves and, and find joy and peace in him. You know, what you say, I know, even with my listeners eavesdropping on this conversation right now, we, we, we resonate with what you say. We, we certainly readily give a mental assent to your observations. And yet oftentimes, isn't there that disconnect that we experience, meaning that we understand, for example, if we want to just kind of a, a coldly in a very calculated manner dissect what transpired yesterday, it is, you know, man's depravity. It is separation of God from God by, by sin. It is our inclination to do wrong and evil and the influence of the enemy in our lives. We understand all of that. And we can certainly, in many ways, kind of pigeonhole or categorize the pain of yesterday into those categories we give complete total mental assent to those realities and yet there's this disconnect where emotionally though we're still saying but wait a minute god i mean aren't you supposed to come in and kind of you know save the day Uh, we look at this and say well you know of all the people that died yesterday uh, three all told why did one of them have to be an eight-year-old boy and suddenly now we're kind of emotionally uh, and spiritually wrestling with god over these things yeah we are you know and i i I fully agree, and I think, you know, for those of us who who grew up Christian or grew up in evangelical homes like I did, I mean, I think I I spent a lot of years just intellectually assenting to things and not really feeling or experiencing them. And there's this this strange tension in the church where you know you're you're clinging to truth and you have biblical truth, but yet you you still want to experience things. You want to feel comforted, and you know, for me. Uh, I think the Bible is full of, uh, of examples of people who, you know, cling to, cling to Christ and cling to, cling to God in the midst of really horrible things that are happening to them. And on one level, you, you, you don't really maybe find comfort in their stories, but I, I find comfort in the idea that there's a model for how we can cling to the Lord in those times, how we can cry out to the Lord, how, you know, King David, who, you know, the Bible says was a man after God's own heart, but, but was also this horrible sinner. You know, he was a, an adulterer and a murderer, and he has the audacity and the, and the courage, really, to ask God for a clean heart. And then he asked God to restore his joy. And this is, you know, when people are pursuing him and, and chasing after him to take his life, you know, he even, he even clings to, to the Lord for joy in that. And, you know, as to how that comforts you know, someone who's who's grappling with the reality of yesterday. I don't know, but I'm but I'm glad it's there, and I'm glad you know the Bible gives us a, a model for how we're to do that. And I've I've found, I mean, my experience has been um, that there's really been no earthly comfort outside of that. And you know, sometimes we can't explain these things away. We can't, um, you know, God doesn't let us know immediately why it's happening. Um, but but that feeling of joy and peace even in the midst of uh, of life's terrible storms i mean that's something that uh experientially we can 
we can look to the Lord and just say thank you. There's one thing, though, that tends to kind of complicate this. And after a brief time out, I want to kind of dig deeper. We, we spoke of the, the, the mental ascent to what we understand to be true from God's perspective, from God's word. Then there's kind of the emotional struggles that we go uh, go into where we, we understand intellectually what's going on. And yet emotionally, still there's that sense of disillusionment and fear and doubt and unbelief. The third aspect that kind of complicates this scenario is the big cover-up. And we'll talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. Best-selling author Ted Kluck is with us today. A look at finding God in the dark. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Continue our visit with best-selling author Ted Kluck. He, along with co-author Ronnie Martin, have written a new book called Finding God in the Dark. Now, we talked a bit about that sense of giving mental assent to what we know are the realities of what's going on in these kind of circumstances, Ted, and yet oftentimes... uh, being just overwhelmed by emotional senses of of doubt and fear and disillusionment. But then there's kind of the other third item that I think tends to complicate this, and you talk about it in the book. It's something that we evangelicals in particular seem to be very adept at, and that is um, kind of faking our way through pain, but, you know, painting on the smile and, and getting past the greeter at the door at church on Sunday or, you know, uh, giving the obligatory, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? When, in fact, we're really not. And I'm wondering if sometimes that sets up a barrier that really blocks us from the ability to deal with how we're feeling and kind of find the sort of uh, a peace and relief that we seek. Yeah, I think it absolutely does. And I think, you know, I wrote about it in the book. I was absolutely guilty of that for so many years. You know, the issues were different for me in that, you know, our our hard times, our dark places, if you will, were infertility, um, a failed adoption, um, some vocation-related failures that I was experiencing. And instead of, you know, being humbled and clinging to the cross and those things, for a lot of years I just got more bitter, you know, more bitter, more cynical, um, but week after week, day after day, you know, Sunday after Sunday, I would go into church and, and, you know, I was, I was everybody's buddy and, and the back slapping lobby guy with a smile for everybody. But inside I was really dying, you know, and I was really struggling with, you know, how do I love a God who, uh, would put me through this quite frankly was, was my thought process. And, um, it was really tough, you know, and, and thankfully the, the same institution that was hard for me in that, the church. Um, it was tough to go to church and it was tough to see everybody else I thought prospering, you know, while I was kind of circling the drain, I thought, but, um, it was that same institution that ended up being, you know, such a help and such a comfort for me as the Holy Spirit, uh, pursued me out of that. I guess the irony is that a lot of us are often going through this, whether it's the way in which a whole community suffers, such as in the wake of the Boston bombing, or individual families. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job. As you point out in your case, it was an adoption that right on the cusp of, of everything coming together, um, your uh, your little Ukrainian daughter, who who was literally the the, the sister of, of one of your adopted boys, uh, mm-hmm. another couple stepped in and the law did what it did uh, thousands of miles away and that whole adoption process fell apart. That created a great deal of 
pain in your life. And I guess maybe the issue oftentimes here is when we're going through pain or fear or doubt or disillusionment, uh, we want to keep up a happy face. You know, nobody typically posts on Facebook what a terrible day that they're having or what an awful meal that they had. They will all tend to kind of want to be uh, happy and, and, and sort of, you know, put on the dog, so to speak. And yet behind that mask oftentimes lurks an awful lot of pain. Yeah, that's so right, man. I, I think oftentimes we're our own best press agents. And, you know, from being in Christian media and Christian entertainment, as I am, you know, there there is this often kind of creepy, you know, motivation to self-promote. And um, I find I found myself doing a ton of that, you know. Uh, again, on Facebook, my Facebook persona was, you know, I was this happy, successful guy with a great family and, um, you know, all kinds of success and all kinds of exciting things happening. But, you know, for anybody who knew me then or, or anybody who was close to me then, you know, the opposite was really true. And um, it wasn't until, you know, I heard some convicting preaching. Um, it wasn't until I, you know, I went to some friends of mine in the church, uh, a pastor and an elder, and just said, look, I'm, I'm struggling here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really dying here. I'm really bitter. And uh, I need your help, you know. Um, thank God, you know, for me that the Holy Spirit pursued me in that way and, uh, and, and kind of led me to do that. Because I think even though the circumstances really haven't changed, you know, this book isn't one of those stories where, you know, we pray a couple of times and then we get rich and have a bunch of kids and everything starts going right for us. You know, the, the circumstances are the same, essentially. Um, but, but Christ has given me a lot of joy and a lot of peace in the midst of that. So I'm thankful. What's the big takeaway? Um, as both you and Ronnie have shared a lot of personal pain in this book, what are you hoping to be the big takeaway for readers and for our listeners tonight? Yeah, you know what? I think a couple of things. Number one, we can feel so alone in our churches um, when we do struggle and when we are in dark places. And uh, Ronnie and I hope that this book would kind of be the, the friend that we don't have in churches you know, the, the person who's willing to be honest about their own struggles and their own sins and their own, you know, dark places. So hopefully it'll be a comfort to people on that level. But um, I think the other takeaway really is just a, a simple presentation of the gospel. You know, that if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and we acknowledge our sinful hearts and our brokenness, that he'll lift us up, you know, and he'll, um, he'll redeem us and he'll give us peace and he'll give us you know the the clean hearts and the and the joy of our salvation that David talks about in Psalm fifty one and you know I think in in different ways and in different struggles um, Ronnie and I have both uh, experienced that and we wanted to you know to write the book as a really an outpouring of thanks to uh, to a Lord who would who would do that for us you know a couple of really sinful screwed up guys. We have a lot of observers right now who they themselves are asking questions who do not currently have a relationship with the Lord. And I know it's easy sometimes to come up with pat answers, but from a sincere standpoint, as as maybe people out there who are not believers are seeking answers and, and asking the why God questions as well, what, what do you tell these people in, in terms of how they can find God in the dark? I think keep asking and keep seeking and um you know the, the holy spirit will find you you know I, I think you know we serve a lord who who finds us and who pursues us and who loves us enough to you know to to, to come after us at times and you know i think if, if people are asking questions that's a great sign you know i don't think you i don't think you get anywhere in this life without asking the hard questions and 
you know, again, you know, there's this, there's this weird tension in the church where you're just so, sometimes you feel like you're supposed to smile and show up and um, everything will be great for you. But, you know, it really wasn't until Ronnie and I started, started asking those hard questions that, um, that we got any peace. And um, so I would say keep asking. I would say, you know, search for truth. I mean, I think we're, we live in a culture where um, it's very cool and it's very sexy to, to be journeying and never arrive anywhere. Um, it's cool to be a seeker, but not a, a, a pursuer of truth. But I would say, you know, seek hard after truth in Scripture and uh, and see how the Lord reveals himself to you. A look at finding God in the dark. Ted Kluck, along with Ronnie Martin, the authors of this new book. And the book, by the way, is re- recently published by, i got to get my cheaters on here, boy. Reaching that age, are you, Roberts? Uh, Bethany House Publishers, and you can find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it through Ted's website at tedcluck, K-L-U-C-K, dot com. And our thanks again to Ted Cluck for visiting with us in this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you are a fan of many of the travel magazines that are out there or perhaps like to watch National Geographic as they take you into these faraway exotic places that are often filled with jungles and wild animals and so forth, you think, what a fascinating part of the world. But don't tell me that people really live there, do they? Oh, not only do they really live there, but in fact, some have adopted it as home. Joining me today in studio, no stranger to the KFAX microphones, he is the founder of Living Waters Village all the way from Borneo. And we're delighted to have Ronnie Habor with us once again. And Ronnie, welcome. Yeah, thank you, Craig. You are gracious to be with us. I'll mention for our listeners that you have just had a lengthy flight, literally halfway across the world. It was about a 15-hour trip, I, I guess. I think a bit more. I think it was 24 altogether. 24 yeah. hours. And then with the sleep deprivation, we invite you into our studios to tell your story. But uh, we're delighted that you're here. And, and you. great to see you again. And, and wonderful to have the opportunity for you to share with our listeners what God is doing in this part of the world in Indonesia. These are stories that we watch on travel magazines, and we are fascinated by the people, by the people, the culture, what these islands look like. But to imagine somebody who travels from a very developed part of the world, Australia, and says, God is calling me and my family to go to what many would consider to be the uttermost parts of the earth and go and plant a ministry there for children, minister to them, rescue them, educate them, bring them into an environment where they can hear the good news. This is really literally what you have been doing for 20-something years now. Yeah, 21 years, yeah. How did God first open that door? How did God take the young man originally from the Netherlands and transplanted into Australia all the way down to Borneo with a wife and children and decide, this is where, son, I want you planted to share my good news? Well, that's a long story, but I'll condense it as quick as possible. Um, I'm actually an Australian, but when I was eight, I went to Holland. My parents are Dutch, and then they decided to go to Holland when I was eight years old, so we did. I was educated there, spent there 10 years, didn't like it there, never liked it there. A lot of things, horrible things happened there, but I always dreamt of going back to Australia, which I did when I was 18. I went back by myself. There, eventually, a couple of years later in Australia, I got, um, I got married and uh, with a Dutch lady, so that was, that was good. There were some good things in Holland after all. And uh, then I... Um, um, got saved. Uh, that's a long story as well, but God got a hold of me. And when God got a hold of me, I realized that there was a purpose in my life 
that I didn't think there was before. And so this uh, gap was filled in my life and I was absolutely radically changed as a result of God coming into my life, allowing him to saturate me and to wanting to use me and I, I realized that God had a purpose and a plan for my life and um, it was just so awesome. I just wanted to tell the whole world and so I knew that uh, I wasn't just meant to be uh, staying in Australia, working in a factory, um, helping out with the church there, but God had bigger plans. I didn't know what, where, how, when. I didn't know that, but I just knew that that God wanted us to prepare ourselves for whatever he had for us. So um, uh, I lost my first wife in a car accident, and then after that I married again, and then both of us really felt that... Um, we need to give up everything and we need to we definitely God called us to give up everything and to just follow him and so we really didn't know um, where to go he, he called us to go to Borneo but it wasn't clear really uh, he didn't write it all out on a piece of paper for us all the things that were going to happen I think if he would have done that we probably would have run the other way like Jonah and would have said <laughs> you know call somebody else but that's not us but just as well I mean God God knows um, your level of faith and uh, he's, he's there to stretch your faith uh, it, it does require of us to be obedient to the Lord and everything so, and to be serious with God it is not just uh, yes I believe in God and that's it and then you just go and do your own thing but here hey God here I am uh, I want to serve you my life is yours you bought it with an expensive price so I want to really do your will while I'm here and um, I realized that my first wife, she was 31 when she died in a car accident. And I thought, you know, she didn't know when she was going to die that day. And uh, I thought, I don't know when I'm going to die. I might have a week to live, a month to live, 10 years, 50 years, whatever it is. It's still only a short speck, you know, compared to eternity. And so, but I want to make a difference. I want to I want to really serve God. I don't want to run after money. I don't want to run after position or power or anything like that. I just want to please my God I want to be obedient to him and so both of us we decided that that's what we want and then God opened the door for us in Borneo now I'm curious about that because of course close proximity to all of that wonderful amazing chain of islands I think 17,000 all told within Indonesia stretching through that part of the world but Borneo I mean some people would say well you're there in Australia why not be called by God to Perth or Sydney or Melbourne yeah, well, <laughs> well yeah, a, lot of, a lot of people go to the Sunshine Coast it's the paradise of Australia you know? they all get called there that's yeah. it yeah, it's like here you go to Hawaii God's you're called right. me to Michigan <laughs> field <laughs> yeah. um, look uh, if you say God here I am use me how, how, however which way then you need to be prepared for that so that's what we said <coughs> excuse me and uh, so we then um, when Borneo opened up we said okay God well, I, I don't even know where Borneo is really but uh, whatever you say and so w- we then did a reconnaissance a trip over there with a friend of mine and I went there for my friend not for me really but for my friend who had a real burden to go to one of the other islands of Indonesia but God said in all my prayer meeting one day a couple of weeks before we left I want you to go to Borneo and visit this these people there so we ended up going there and when I arrived there I got off the flight there in Pontianak my heart started to race like like anything and it was as if I came home I had the same feeling when I came back from Holland coming back to Australia, uh, dreaming of this moment for 10 years, being back in my own country, and my heart started to race, and I felt really like 
I'm home again. Mm. I had the same experience when I came to Pontianak. And I said to God, I'm not here for me. I'm here for him. I'm here for my friend. But it became clear that God was telling me, well, you've been asking, you know, where do you want me to come to? I said, well, God said, this is where I want you to come. You and Kay to come. So I kept it to myself until I got back home. And then I said to my wife, I really believe that God is saying that we we had to pack our bags and to go to Borneo. And she goes, great, when are we going? Wow. So she was she was ready. She knew that... What about your children now? You, you had Were they teenagers at the time? Uh, I, my daughter was 18. My son, uh, Paul, was 11. And our youngest at that time, Nathaniel, was one. Now, that's, that's kind of startling news to deliver to the family. I mean, it's one yeah. thing to say, well, Dad and Mom are heading off to Borneo here. And where? <laughs> but you're coming with us. Um, how did the children first react to that? Uh, well, they already knew that any day, any moment, God could call us wherever, to Russia, China, who knows where. So they already knew that that was coming one day. Uh, our daughter didn't. She was 18, and she decided that she did, wasn't going to go. And she had her own life there in Australia, so she was continued to study there. So we left her behind, which was a real difficult decision to make. But sure. But uh, we felt that God was in control and he was looking after her, so that was okay. Paul was 11 and it was a very difficult time for him because he had to leave his school and friends behind. Um, in one sense, he wanted the adventure, you know, going to somewhere unknown and, hey, this will be cool. The other, On the other side of the coin, he didn't want to leave his friends and his, his known world And you're, you're going to a place where the culture is different, very the different. language is different, yeah. the surroundings are different, there's different. there's nothing or very little, I would imagine, there in Borneo that seemed to at all be a reminder of what life must have been like back home in Australia. Yeah, yeah it's very, very different. And uh, for the first year, of course, then you realize how incredibly different you are. And uh, with my son in particular, who is 11, 12 years old, 11 when we went there, but I remember one day we were in a with the tribal people, the tribal people there are the Dayaks and they're, they're um, animists, so they believe in all sorts of spirits and all sorts of things. And uh, we were at this um, uh, longhouse where from the Iban tribe and um, they had a celebration. They just opened up this new longhouse that they built because their previous one had burned down. And it's a whole community lives in one house, one longhouse. So you have 30 to 50 families living in the one house. It, unfortunately, if somebody cooks their meal in their little section of the the building and it get, gets on fire the whole the, you know the whole village actually loses their accommodation and so um but this is what happened they built a new one and they came and asked us whether we would come and and bless the the new building so we did and my son was there and we were sitting opposite the tribal chief and he kept on staring at my son he was a good looking guy good looking kid and uh, he had this chain around his neck with a shark tooth on it and the tribal chief kept on staring at my son. And he said eventually, he says to me in, uh, in his language, he said, how much do you want for him for that? And he pointed to my son. But I thought he was pointing to his necklace. No, he meant how much do you want to sell <laughs> well, your well, son? Well, I, I thought he was pointing to his necklace. So I yeah. said, oh, that's his. That, uh, you'll have to ask him, you know. I don't know whether he wants to sell it. He goes, you're the father? I said, yes. He said, well, how much do you want for him? I said, for my son. He said, yes, I want to buy your son. I said, you want to buy my son? And so my son then realized something was going on. He couldn't understand the language. He said, what is he saying, Dad? I said, hang on a minute. 
he wants to buy you. Just wait a minute. <laughs> so he grabbed a hold of my arm and he goes, Dad, don't say anything foolish yet. I said, just hang on a minute. We're negotiating here. So, you know, joking a little bit. Um, but at the same time, I realized this, this, eventually I realized this is quite serious because I said to him, why do you want to buy my son? Is it for my daughter in marriage? I said, he's 12 years old. He said, yes, my daughter is 12 years old as well, or 13. And he said, that would be a good match. And I said, ah, oh, he's not for sale. He said, why not? I said, well, he's not for sale. And then I, I thought, then I realized, oh, gosh, I, got, I need to watch out what I say here because any moment you can, you know, by nodding the wrong way or saying the wrong thing or doing another expression or something, a deal has been made. So, and I thought, my goodness, how different our cultures are, you know. Mm-hmm. We just would never think of something like that. But uh, I still tease my son with that sometimes, as, you know, years after I say, misbehave. Yep. I said, I still the can make a deal. still out there. <laughs> <laughs> if you've just joined us today in studio with us is Ronnie Habor. He is the founder of Living Waters Village. By the way, you can find out more about this amazing ministry. Yes, indeed, right in the heart of Borneo by going online to livingwatersvillage.org. That's livingwatersvillage.org. The story of the miracle zone in the jungles of Borneo is the title of Ronnie's book, co-authored with a very dear friend of ours, Pastor Don Sheely from Church of the Highlands, and if you want to get information about the book, you can check it out again online at livingwatersvillage.com. That's livingwatersvillage.com. We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. With us today in studio, a very special guest from a very special part of the world. Ronnie Habor is with us. He is the co-author of a new book called Miracle Zone in the Jungles of Borneo, co-authored with Church of the Highlands' own Pastor Don Sheely. By the way, you can hear Pastor Don weekday mornings at 6.30 a.m. for daybreak right here on KFAX. Ronnie Habor, founder of Living Waters Village, sharing this amazing story of, of traveling literally from... Australia to the jungles of Borneo simply because God said go and and as you went Ronnie I'm curious was there any particular agenda in mind in other words some people say okay we have a a vision here to uh, plant a church or we're going to build a medical facility things of this sort what what is it that God had put in your mind or had he even crystallized any specific thoughts in terms of what exactly now you know to where you've been called did you understand how or why oh absolutely not uh, God did sort of show us that we would I mean these people need salvation so um, obviously it's bringing the gospel message to them sure. somehow some way and then plant churches there and whatever so that with that in mind we sort of left there and we and we started there already straight away when we we, we come to Kuching on the Malaysian side of Borneo and started there first and then worked in the Malaysian side of, of Borneo plus uh, travelling over the border into the Indonesian side of Borneo and um uh, the, the people groups are the same. There's 400 different tribal groups belonging to the Dayaks, and they all have their own culture, their own language, and um, some are more some are more primitive than others. Some are already quite civilized. They live around the coastal areas, but a lot of them in the interior are still quite primitive, and still even today they're still quite remote and primitive. Now, I'm curious, across that arc within the Dayak population, though, are they all predominantly all animists? The, the Dayaks are predominantly animists. I mean, there are some that have become Muslim, some have become Christian, some are Catholic, but the um, uh, majority are animistic, yeah. And so um, uh, it, it, 
it was uh, we believe that it was our task to sort of you know start planting churches which we did in the beginning but then as we started to see um all the misery that was going on, particularly on the Indonesian side, because the, the Malaysian side they were fairly well looked after by the government in many ways. And the Indonesian side was a different story altogether. The further that you went into the the remote areas, the more misery that you that we experienced there, and uh, the more difficult it was often to bring the gospel to them uh, because of all the poverty that you saw there. But um, at the same time, God sort of challenged us there to do something about it because I just. I just wanted. To, I just kept on saying, God, this just doesn't make sense. We're trying to, you know, bring a bring the gospel to these people, bring Jesus to these people, bring you to them. But how this this poverty seems so huge, so fast. How can we change this? And uh, so we started to see all these kids that were neglected and nobody wanted, especially orphans. Uh, they were neglected because if families can't look after their own kids, they haven't got enough food to look after their own children. Then even more so for the for the orphans in their in their villages, they're sort of uh, dis- disregarded and left on their own. They're literally just abandoned, yeah. and they fend for themselves. Yeah. I mean, we hear terms like street kids here in America. These kids are literally just sort yeah. of sent off and wish you luck, and yeah. they're on their own to do as best as they can. Yeah. So, and they're of course. Sometimes they, they can survive, uh, especially if they're strong. But when they're, if they're weak and already sick and all that, then they won't survive. You see, over there in the, in the jungles, you'd think there'd be enough food there everywhere. You'd think that the, the trees, they produce enough fruits and, and roots and all that sort of stuff. But the thing is, sometimes there is no fruit at all for a whole year. Sometimes they have two crops or three crops a year, and sometimes they have nothing for a whole year. And so when, when the families of these tribes... Uh, they use their seeds for for growing rice the next year. They use that up because they're hungry. Then the, they know that the next year they're going to starve, and so that's when you'll see a lot of children will actually die of starvation and will be um, abandoned. And uh, you see some dreadful situations, particularly like uh, girls when they're eleven, twelve years old, they get their first period. They're married off to these old ghastly guys who want another wife. So the witch doctor then marries them off, makes a deal with these guys. Uh, in exchange for a couple of pigs, the parents will get a couple of pigs for their daughter, and their daughters are married off. And you see these little girls pregnant already straight away, and by the time they're 20, they've already had four, five, six kids. Half of them are dead from neglect, and the other half are neglected. You know, because they have no concept of love. It's gone out the window already a couple of generations. So all these kids that we get now in our place, many of them have no concept of love at all. No, you really come into a scenario where it seems as if when we talk about... <clears throat> traveling to anywhere to share the good news of the gospel and of course at the at the very core of that is enveloped by this tremendous way in which God has demonstrated his love toward us his willingness to look past our sin to ultimately sacrifice his only son so that we might walk in fellowship with him have our sins be forgiven um, have that sense of connectivity between creator and creation and so at, at the core of the message of the gospel is this profound love Absolutely. that God has shown toward us, and yet you come into this scenario as you're describing, Ronnie, and you think, you know, we're here trying to present this this other spirit, in a sense, since this is the animist viewpoint is that there's spirits that reside in everything. The tree has a spirit, the, the rock has a spirit, etc. You're tr- coming to, to, to describe to and share with the Dayak people this other spirit who is at the core a loving spirit, yeah. and yet 
you look at the depravity and the circumstances in which they're living and the kind of suffering, particularly amongst these kids, it seems to me as if you're really compelled to have to do something to address these these immediate felt needs. I mean, you see a kid starving and say, well, wait, before you die, let me tell you about Jesus. What? Yeah. And that would mean totally nothing to them. I mean, if you would just say to a dying kid who's starving, uh, look, uh, Jesus loves you, and I love you too, and uh, let me pray for you right now. Uh, I don't think you... I don't no, know for sure he's talking about one iota about what you're just saying. But if you if you take that kid in, and you, you care for that child, and you, you love that child as if he was your own, uh, then uh, very quickly that child will know... Uh, who Jesus is uh, after you share that with you. You and your wife, Kay, began doing just that. Yeah. And and some might say now, 20 years later, it kind of grew out of hand. <laughs> uh, this Living Waters Village has absolutely taken off. And it went from maybe a, a small size, let's have a vision that we can handle here, to a vision that I would imagine has gone absolutely beyond anything you could have ever dreamt or thought of in those early days. Well, again, it was just God showing us that God doesn't give you the whole full story yet because he knows where you're at with your faith. That's why I said Jonah, I would have run away like like Jonah did. But the thing is, um, he gives you just enough to be able to handle and to stretch your faith a little bit more. So it was a process that God took through us, with us, that, that hey, do I really believe that God is God, who, who says he is and that he can do anything? You know, a lot of people believe in God, but they I, I come across so many Christians today that don't believe really that God can do anything anymore. He can do some things, but there are limits. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas that's not the case. If God created the heavens and the earth and he created mankind and we're so complex put together, he can create anything. He can do anything. Now, God rescued my two children when they were in a car accident with my first wife miraculously. And I knew from that day, if God can do this... You know, against all odds, I and mean, even the neurologist said to me, it's absolutely impossible that your children could survive this. And yet they survived and they pulled through and they're healed completely. That if God can do that, he can do anything. And so God was already working in our lives, showing us that, hey, you know, um, I can do anything. But do you believe that? And do you, and, you know, and not just believe it. How do I know that you be- that, that your faith is your, is real? Is by testing you on your faith. So then you require to step out on your faith as well, and and do the things that God has asked you to do. So do I really believe then? When when the Lord told us a number of years later, when we already had a number of kids in our house, look, I want you now to prepare a place for a thousand neglected children and build schools for two thousand. Now we didn't have a cent to do that, and we didn't have the resources to do that, the people to do that. But I just knew that when God said do that. You just, we just have to start doing it. It, it. it occurs to me, Ronnie, that this is not just then simply a matter of, of having the kind of belief that God is capable of doing these things. But then this concept of surrender really needs to enter in too, doesn't it? Absolutely. Surrender in the sense that, okay, we know that God can do it, but are we willing to turn over everything to him to allow him to do it? Take my control, my ideas out of the picture, so to speak, and just say, okay, God, Absolutely. We're surrendering to you. Yes. Wow, that's I mean that 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 takes your faith to a whole different level, doesn't it? When, when the Lord told us in Australia, and we, Kay and I were pretty well off. We we had we were well set. We had plenty of money. We had our own house paid off. We had no debt. So we're quite young still. Uh, I was only thirty-two, and we had all this all this stuff. We were we had good jobs, good pay jobs, uh, good uh, church. 
uh, family there and all that. And then God told us to pack up, sell up, and follow Him. And so we did. And so now I always say to people, you know, I then I had all this money and I had all this stuff, you know, that I could um, just grab a hold of. I said, but now I've got nothing. I don't have a house or land or anything, no pension, no retirement fund or nothing. I said, but I'm richer today than I've ever been in my life. Why? Because I think, I, I believe that we've learned to surrender it over to God. If God says, you know, I, I want you to trust in me, I want you to I want you to do this, this is what you've asked me, well, I'm giving you this task, now it's up to you whether you will whether you'll be successful in this. It's not up to God. God is already there and he's already there ready to bless you. And this is why I always say, you know, many, many Christians don't realize that their obedience to God will actually save and bless many other people. And if we don't obey God once he's asked us to do something, then actually a lot of people are going to miss out mm. because of our disobedience. That's a scary prospect. That's a scary thing. See, all of us are going to stand before the throne of God one day and we're all going to have to give an account. And what are we going to say to the Lord? I don't want to be in that position where he's going to be so disappointed with me because I didn't do what he asked me to do. You know, like I said, we're only here for a small, short moment in this planet, in this in this life. You know, and so, but what are we going to do with it? And as a Christian, isn't that isn't that correct? When when we've asked Jesus to come into our lives, that we've actually surrendered everything over to Him, not just the things that we want to surrender, but everything. So my my life, my time, my resources, my family, my everything to Him, and then and then I should. Uh, so I'm here then for his business. God's business is people, people that are saved, people that are lost, mankind. And I want to make sure that, you know, I, I don't want um, people around the world to say, oh, Ronnie, well done, you know, you, 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 you've you started this up, you've been obedient to the Lord, rah, rah, rah. I want people to come to know Christ. And these kids now are coming to know Christ. I've got kids now that are in Bible college. Twenty-five of them are now in Bible college. They want to be pastors and church planters. Wow. Got thirty-four in universities around Indonesia. They're our teachers. We at school. Uh, just saying to Pastor Tony, we're starting up with our uh, senior high school this year, uh, which is a major step of faith. But um, again, every year we see miracle after miracle happen by just stepping out of faith, trusting in God for everything, and God comes through every time. And also all our teachers, all 37 that we have at our school now, are all our own kids that have come through the ranks and we've sent them off to university, we've come back and now are helping out with the next generation. So I, I think that's awesome to see God working in these lives. And that's what it's all about, is to rescue mankind, rescuing those that desperately need Christ. And that's everywhere, that's the whole world. I mean, the people, the, there are unsaved people all over the world and that's why we need, if we don't do that, if we don't obey God, you know, who else is going to do it? Didn't he ask us to do it? So, Absolutely. We, we so, are to be the conduit through yeah. which his spirit flows and works and, and, and moves amongst people to, to impact lives with the good news of the but gospel. Too, too, too much today, I think, we sort of look at what are my rights and what are, you know, 
What God? What can God do for me? That's I mean, right. it's not enough to say that He saved you, and now it's like, okay, let's uh, let's regard God as our big cosmic bellhop and see what He can go do for us. We're going to pause on that point. Come back to more of our conversation with Ronnie Habor of Living Waters Village. More information, by the way, on the web at livingwatersvillage.com. That's livingwatersvillage.com. The book is called Miracle Zone in the Jungles of Borneo, written by Ronnie Habor and co-authored by Don Sheely, Pastor Don from Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. A brief time out back with more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 